Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that critically analyzes some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week is our last episode of our mini-series. It's going to be our final discussion on Chapter 30 and the epilogue and our final thoughts on the book. Yeah, so we've been we've been building up to here. It's been almost three months now, and it's uh, it's really been a lot of fun going through this book, but this is quite an ending for it. Oh, yes. So, since a lot happened in the last chapter and a half, why don't you give us a recap? So, Snow starts to react to the offer to go to officer school and the tragedy he feels that he can't go because he still thinks he's wanted. He meets with Lucy Gray at the hanging tree so that they can flee. They head for the lake, and on the way, Snow slips that he killed three people that summer. And as they go to prep food in the cabin, they find the guns, the evidence of his murder. When Lucy Gray goes to find Katniss Potatoes, he immediately realizes he can stay, and so he goes to find Lucy Gray. He ultimately just starts to hunt her down, realizing that she is a witness as well. She leaves a trap for him and starts using the Mockingjays against him until he starts firing wildly at her, thinking that he might have gotten her, and flees back to District 12 after getting bitten by a snake from Lucy Gray's trap. He gets mended and ultimately goes back to the capital on Dr. Gall's orders. Dr. Gall reveals her plan for him to go to university and study under her. In the epilogue, we find out that he is interning as a game maker, he's putting in new proposals for the Hunger Games, and that he has been designated the heir of the Plinths, so his family are well off once more. And at the end, he visits Dean Highbottom. He learns the story of how Snow's dad got Highbottom drunk to get him to come up with the idea of the Hunger Games. And ultimately, Snow leaves and thinks about how he left poisoned Morphling to kill Highbottom and gloats that Snow lands on top. Yes, he does do all of that. Yes, indeed. So, uh, Snow's the worst. No surprise Conclusion, there, that's the end of the book. <laughs> there we go. Uh, you're welcome, listeners. We'll see you next week. <laughs> well, before we go into our analysis, why don't we talk about a quote? This quote comes from Chapter 30. I will be playing Lucy Gray. Brittany will be Snow. And this is a discussion they have as they make their way to the lake. You know what I won't miss? People. Except for a handful. They're mostly awful if you think about it. People aren't so bad, really. It's what the world does to them. Like us in the arena. We did things in there we'd never have considered if they just left us alone. I don't know. I killed Mayfair, and there was no arena in sight. But only to save me. I think there's a natural goodness built into human beings. You know when you've stepped across the line into evil, and it's your life's challenge to try and stay on the right side of that line. It's actually pretty uh, fitting for me to read Snow here, because I have said statements very much like... (laughs) Yeah, people are the worst. <laughs> yeah, in this contra- contrast, at least, we actually pretty accurately reflect these two characters in our, our ways of looking at people. Definitely, except I wouldn't have killed Mayfair, so there's yeah, that. <laughs> very true, very true. You're a pacifist that hates people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily want to hang out with them, but I think they should be able to live. <laughs> <laughs> But here we we really see, put into words, the philosophical battle at the heart of this book, I think. Snow representing Dr. Gall's perspective of people being bad, and Lucy Gray seeing people as inherently good. And the way that they think about society and freedom in many ways stems from those different perspectives. Yeah, it's interesting because there are definitely elements that I do agree with Lucy Gray here that a lot of the times it's the world and the systems that are in place that foster the problems to begin with that Mm -hmm. cause people to do terrible things. But obviously that's not always true at all. And so it's important for her to point that out. But also, you know, I, I don't think that people always know when they've stepped over a line into evil. Isn't that part of what sociopathic tendencies are right there's a different set of morals that people follow and we don't always have the same ones but i mean yeah right like we all should be trying to 
stay on the quote-unquote good side of the line, whatever that may be. It's just unfortunate that we don't agree with that is. Yeah, that's so true. I, I think that one of the things that comes from seeing this book through Snow's perspective is that we don't see Snow recognize when he steps over the line into evil. <laughs> oh, that's because he never does. Right. <laughs> but but I think that that's, that's true to people, right? People often think of themselves as having done what was right for themselves in, in, in their situation. Very few people think of themselves as evil, which is why most of the best villains don't think of themselves as evil. But I, mm-hmm. I do love Lucy Gray's point that, yeah, it's it's not only the work of life, but it's life's challenge to stay on the right side of doing good. I just think that that is such a great way of phrasing this because it's not something that you ever arrive at. You're constantly challenged in this way, and it will, will always be a challenge throughout life. But you want to do your best, and no one will be perfect, but you want to do your best to, to stay on the right side. And I, th- I think that's a really interesting thing about this book, too. As much as I despise Snow, I feel like he does represent a lot of humankind, I think, in certain ways. Not that everybody does what he does or would do what he does, but this double standard and letting yourself be the exception to the rule, I think, mm. is a very human thing that almost all people I've ever met do, even if they're wonderful people. Yeah, I think the book is a really interesting kind of look at human nature and where we could go if we allowed ourselves to convince ourselves that when we did something wrong and selfish and destructive, that it was okay for us to do that. Yeah. And and the other thing I love about Lucy Gray's statement is how she talks about how it's what the world does to people and how situations often put people into places where it makes easy choices about morality much, much more difficult. And there's certainly no right and wrong binary in most situations, but that there is a lot of complexity there of what systems create in regards to how people act. Definitely. And another thing that I was thinking about in regard to this quote is... It's just interesting to me that Lucy Gray and Dr. Gall's perspectives are just kind of at polar opposites. And while Dr. Gall had such a huge impact on Snow's perspectives, Mm -hmm. Lucy Gray's perspective doesn't sway him at all. I was just, you know, wondering why that is. Is it because she's not from the Capitol? Is it because Dr. Gall's perspective gives way to to the capital having the ultimate power and Mm. snow believes in that and it just reinforces it or you know is it because in some ways snow proves lucy gray's perspective wrong by being terrible even (laughs) when he didn't have to make hard choices he grew up in the exact same environment as tigress did and she had it worse than he did and he still does what he does and makes those choices and so yeah I don't know I was just wondering about that yeah that brings up so many interesting questions because the the contrast between snow and tigress in particular shows that individuality does play a role but at the same time I think there's an argument there that can be made that snow's violence and desire for control and all these other kinds of things is itself a manifestation of the violent hierarchy that exists in this society. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this has only been about four paragraphs, and we have a whole lot more to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we move on? Because this is the last episode, we're not going to have all of the same sections we have before. So we're going to have touch points, character arcs, and then give our final impressions on the book in and of itself and the book within the, the Hunger Games world. So what were you thinking about for touch points? Well, one thing that I thought that really struck me was the unhealthy expectations that both Lucy Gray and Snow have as they meet and decide to run away together. Both of them discuss how they're each other's whole lives now and and just putting all of this weight 
on each other as they're making this huge new life change and just how unhealthy that is. And it reminds me of the same kind of decisions that sometimes people make in our world where they rush into relationships or marriages or what have you or they start putting all of these expectations or weight on people that they shouldn't and how that can really lead to destructive relationships. Yeah, definitely. And like also being in a relationship with someone that you don't know is unsafe Mm -hmm. because they don't show you that right away. Yeah. 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 How about you share a touch point? One that I was thinking about was when he does get back to the Capitol. Dr. Gall talks about how she's destroyed all of the copies of Lucy Gray's games, except Mm. one that's like in a vault somewhere. And it said he was glad about the erasure. It was just one more way to eliminate Lucy Gray from the world. The Capitol would forget her. The districts barely knew her. And District 12 had never accepted her as one of their own. And that was just really making me think of the practice of erasure of women and their contributions. They're like thousands of years of history. And obviously this is especially true of women of color and like queer women and people who are, are marginalized, particularly as women. So, you know, since Lucy Gray is definitely part of a marginalized group, even though she had this huge effect and actually completely changed the course of the games, By Katniss's time, she basically doesn't even exist anymore. And Mm. I'm sure Snow, this man, gets all the credit for the successes of building the entertainment component of the games. And it really was based off of her talent. So yeah, I was just thinking about that and how, you know, she says, someday something will kill me, but it won't be you. And she's like talking to District 12 and the Hunger Games and Mayor Lip, but is the erasure of Lucy Gray, no matter what happened by the lake, like is the erasure what effectively kills her in the end? Or does she never really die because Katniss like brought back the Hanging Tree song and its defiance? Oh, that's so profound. I love that so much. That's amazing. (laughs) It's just making me think now about, as always, in this kind of uh, historiographic context, there are whole schools of thought that have become really popular nowadays of, you know, reading sources that, as you mentioned, highlight the works of mostly the white men in power for the perspectives and the experiences of those who they're not made by and for. This idea of reading these sources against the grain and a source that may have been intended to reinforce the power structure as it stood can be read in some ways and and there's all sorts of historians and other academics trying to read these sources in ways that highlight the agency and humanity of the people that it was actually oppressing. This absolutely happens to to women throughout most of history, people of color, you know, all sorts of, of disadvantaged folks and you're so, so right. This is such a historically awful thing to have happened to so many people and that's exactly what Gall and Snow are attempting to do to Lucy Gray. Oh, that's so true. Great perspective. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Something else terrible. When Snow was thinking about even if the Covey found Lucy Gray's body, like they wouldn't report it Mm -hmm. because they wouldn't want the attention that it brought. And so that was reminding me a lot of how fear of deportation stops a lot of immigrants from reporting yeah. crimes or participating in court proceedings. And also like how common it is for sex workers to not report serious and violent crimes that are committed against them because of how terrible that community has been treated and exploited by law enforcement. And so I thought that that was just like another great, terrible line <laughs> that is absolutely so true. Yeah, yeah, and and shows that this is not just random happenstance in our society or in the capital, that these are systems that are played to the advantage of those in power. Absolutely. Did you have any others? I did, yeah. I, I had one during Snow's frustration with his his new life as he's running away. He first starts to think about how much more difficult this is for him because he's such an exceptional person. And, you know, he says, I think that if he was useless or stupid, this would be no problem at all. But literally a couple paragraphs later, he starts thinking about how does one build a roof? That's not something that was on my (laughs) officer's test. 
So we can see that that the idea of what he considers useless and really inhuman is so, so far removed from reality because this extremely useful tool and technique of being able to build things and construct things, things that he never had to learn as a privileged person, he realizes now is necessary in the new kind of lifestyle he's living while also bemoaning the idea that someone who would know those skills would be happier going into this type of lifestyle. And it's just, I think, so, so clearly a parallel to the way that hierarchy and power exists in, in our world as well. You know, we, we we value some jobs so much more than others, where some of the most demanding and hardworking and physically or mentally demanding jobs are the lowest paid and the lowest valued jobs in our society. And they're looked down on if you are just a whatever it might be. But all these people are doing really essential jobs that are providing utilities, housing, food. These are the kinds of basic necessities. And those are just valued so, so little. And the only, like, the function of those jobs are what allow these people who think they're so much better to even be able to do their, you know, better work. Yes, Exactly. It's like, oh, they're harvesting food out in the field. Well, what are you going to eat? I don't think you have any skills for farming. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the juxtapositions that Collins has in this book where reading through Snow's thoughts one page against the other just shows the audacity and the absurdity of some of his, his think, ways of thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, and then I, I, my last one was just that uh, going back to the idea of why Snow and Dr. Gall have this mindset, part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that they have power and thus control is important for them. And what Snow starts to see as chaos is chaotic for him, but freedom for others. And that's because he sees the lack of the capital, the lack of control, the lack of intense hierarchies that he's the top of as the destruction of society as he knows it. That's just so true, I think, for our society as well, where, you know, look at our discussions about what life would be like without police in our communities, which for one is not what a lot of people who are asking to divest from police are saying, but for two is coming from such a perspective of how can we not have police to protect us because that's all police have ever done for me and for my family and doesn't see the reality that police have much more complicated and often much more violent relationships, particularly historically, for people of color and for others in our society. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Well, what other touch points did you have? Yeah, so I was also thinking about power and privilege and... In this book? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And ultimately, a white man from an upper-class background literally gets away with murder and goes on to have a successful career and lavish lifestyle while Sejanus was executed for political dissent and basically trying to save a life. And Lucy Gray was suspected of murders that she didn't even commit, which led her to lose her own life, whether, you know, she actually was shot in the forest or not. And, you know, Snow gets to go on and live a long life of power and luxury and get away with so much more than anyone else could that wasn't from his background. You know, his peacekeeper exile wasn't even real. That's so true. Yeah, it's just Snow is the quintessential example of white male privilege absolutely uh, uh, especially as that intersects with class as well exactly yeah because you know think about white collar crime and the level to which people actually get punished for it or 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 anything i think that 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 parallel with his punishment being a summer and not even really a punishment is is such a great example of that yeah, it's like, oh, you you caused the United States to go into a recession and all of these people to suffer? I guess you get a slap on the wrist. <laughs> oh, but this person, he stole a bag of chips from the 7-Eleven, so, you know, we gotta make sure we... I guess we... he's going to jail yeah, for years. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 But should we move on to our character arc segment? That's a great idea. Okay, well, why don't we talk about Sejanus? What are you thinking about in terms of his character arc throughout the book and also through part three of the book? Yeah, I I think that that this last part was so interesting because 
For the first time, we saw Sejanus through Snow's perspective in a positive light, where Snow, having lost many of the privileges that he had, sees Sejanus as a, a really important figure in his life now, and one which, again, I, I do think that at least at times he does care about, and all of Snow's caring probably has some sort of selfishness involved, but, but there is care there, I think, as well, and clearly at least guilt, if not shame, over what he does in regards to helping Sejanus be killed. I'm glad that he at least considers himself having killed him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, I mean, which is saying something for him. He absolves himself from everything, so. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a really interesting part, and, and one of my favorite parts, I think, of these last few chapters is Snow's inner monologue as he's dealing with his guilt there. And mm. it's nice to see Snow talk about how much he hates himself at times, but. Because we all feel it, too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. For once, I can actually understand what Snow's thinking. <laughs> but I also think it's interesting seeing Sejanus not really change too much. He doesn't really have an arc in these in this part. Uh, he, he has a narrative arc, but his character, I think, stays pretty stagnant. And, and if anything, it's just that he becomes more and more aware that he is literally unable to live within this system. But we as, as readers realize, particularly with what happens to him, that the extent of his privilege has also blinded him to some of the realities of this system and has helped to instill a naivete that he would be untouchable as as snow clearly exhibits at times as well and, and well i mean i think yes and no i think he's definitely more bold than somebody who grew up fearing for like like the covey have to fear for their own safety mm -hmm. he definitely has an audacity that they don't but at the same time you know he said yeah, if, if things don't go right, they'll arrest me. It wasn't, oh, if things don't go right, my dad will be able to pay and get me out of this situation. But he also wasn't like, they will murder me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and I really even see it more in his actions because they're there for, what, three weeks or so in District 12? And he comes up with this whole plan and all these other these ideas and if I was in his position, I would probably feel similarly, want to do these kinds of more rebellious acts and hopefully escape. But I would also really take my time to figure out how to do this in ways that are going to be more successful and less dangerous, not only for myself, but for the other people I'm working with. No, absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the truly tragic things about Sejanus and what happens with his character is he, he had said before he was responsible for more of the capital's reconstruction than the president was in like kind of joking, but also not. And mm -hmm. in a way he was right because the distress that he experienced because of his strong moral beliefs made him take rash action that mm. made him never be able to harness the plant's fortunes to help foster real change. And it is so tragic because he could have done so much and he would have done so much. It's just like, oh no, like just take your time. Yeah, make a better plan and all of these things. But I also at the same time like can't completely blame him for that because, you know, he was taken from his home at what age eight and like forced to live in a place where people bullied him where there were avoxes living in his home mm. where you know he had absolutely no friends for about a decade who can withstand that and and be able to make logical well-adjusted decisions when you don't even have anyone who is wise and trustworthy to be able to discuss it with yeah, it's just, it's it's so unfortunate because he could have done a lot and, yeah. and he wouldn't have stopped trying, but he made some rash decisions. But I mean, partially, I think it was because his mental state was just plummeting. I mean, he didn't seem to do any of these things before he had to be a mentor in the games. And after that, with him having to mentor Marcus and what they did to Marcus and then everything that just snowballs after that he couldn't take it anymore and you know he even said that like he couldn't stay here he said we both know it sooner or later I'm gonna snap and like I think it was a immensely responsible thing for him to do to try to remove himself from the situation before he harmed himself or someone else mm. because he was not in a good mental health 
state. He stopped eating, sleeping, all of these things. And I understand it, but it, yeah, ugh, it's so sad. It's, it's, yeah, it's tragic. But I think that now that we've finished the book, we can officially designate Sejanus as hashtag best boy for the book. Definitely. 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 Best boy Sejanus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he's the greatest. Something that I did think was really interesting, though, kind of like a weakness that shows up mainly in the third section of the book. Snow actually kind of calls him on his sense of justice, leads him to go into these ethical quagmires and not really think about how they might affect other people. Mm. One right thing Snow's done in regard to Sejanus is, yeah, like saying, hey, this affects other people too. I mean, really, Snow was just caring about himself, but it's still a valid argument (laughs) that, yeah, he was being a bit self-indulgent in that way. And... And I, I definitely sympathize with that because, like, I feel similarly on things. That it's just, like, it's so hard for me to be part of something I don't morally believe in. And living in the United States, <laughs> a <laughs> ridiculous percentage of my taxes go to the military and electronic devices I'm using right now that are made from conflict minerals, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And it's like, I hate it. And I try to do what I can to be minimal at a shop fair trade, et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, it's never enough. And if you've watched The Good Place, (laughs) you know that (laughs) if you live in a developed part of this globalized world, it's impossible not to touch violence in some way. And so I just, I really resonate with Sidonis' feelings. And, you know, if he had just been able to live longer, maybe he would have been able to learn how to sit with the dissonance of that and like find some type of mental health balance with it but unfortunately he never really got the chance or had the support to be able to find that balance yeah and and i i can't imagine how lonely it is because he doesn't have anyone else who agrees with him and who has the same perspectives and mm-hmm. that snow is the closest thing he has to a brother is just so sad it really is. And then the, the first time he's finding these rebels and he's like, oh, well, I'm going to take this chance to run away. They don't stand for these things either. And not, I mean, this is the first experience he's ever gotten to interact with people that aren't from the capital since he was like eight. Yeah, so, exactly. <sighs> oh, Sejanus. Oh, Sejanus. So before we move on to Lucy Gray, I, I did want to touch back on our conversation about queerness that we had in the last episode Mm. because I was just thinking about it some more and I kind of wonder if it's more accepted in the capital but not in some districts because Mm. like if Snow doesn't bat an eye at Pluribus, Barb, or even Sejanus's flirtatious comments, Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's because the capital is kind of like the white liberals of our society Mm. (laughs) where it's like okay in ideology if that's still within a more subtle patriarchal system where those who are queer are still on the margins Mm -hmm. versus district two is this military weapons district that is rife with toxic masculinity and breaking out from social norms is going to equal estrangement that we see exemplified in Strabo Plinth. And so, mm. you know, why would Sejanus say anything about being queer if he is when he already, you know, had enough to fight with his dad about? And I read Sejanus as an Arab person of color, and so that would be intersectional well as well. And so, yeah, I don't know. I was just, I was thinking about that. But obviously, disclaimer, even though I'm queer, I have not studied queer theory or history or anything. So it's more just kind of wonderings and like what I find kind of interesting in the silence surrounding the few comments that we actually get in the books. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. Thanks for sharing that perspective. Oh, you're welcome, Chris. (laughs) 
<laughs> Someone had to, because apparently there's nothing online. <laughs> and and that's so true. I, and I think that's a great way of going into Lucy Gray, because I know that we both tried looking up, as we discussed in previous episodes, reactions from Romani communities to this book and to the possible representation of the Kovi as Romani. And, and I know you, you did look, looking up there. What did, what did you find? Yeah, so I found a few interesting things. I thought I could read some quotes from them because I am in no way an expert on this either. Mm -hmm. So one is by a cultural anthropologist named Carol Silverman who spent like 25 years researching with Roma. She said, in this heightened atmosphere of xenophobia, Roma, as Europe's largest minority and its quintessential other, face the paradox that they are revered for their music yet reviled as people, which I thought was so appropriate for this book because mm. we see people in the hub and even other places love Lucy Gray singing and her music and her performance. But when it comes down to her as a person, she's suspect. She's other. She's not a part of them. Or she's trashier. You know, all of these different perspectives that people have on her. It's like, yeah, this taking what they like, which is the music, but being discriminatory and racist against her as a person. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, some really, really interesting parallels there. Yeah, another thing I was reading on an article by Nerds of Color. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Yeah, I know, right? And I'll uh, add a couple links in our episode description. So if mm. anybody is a nerd like me and wants to read more, you can do so. But it was interesting. It, it was saying that like you'd be hard-pressed to name more than four or five Romani characters in American media. Mm. They're typically romanticized as, you know, fortune tellers or exotic romantic folk and always referred to as, quote, gypsies, which is a term that, from my understanding, the Romani people as a whole have rejected because it's based off of an incorrect idea that they came from Egypt, which is not true. It was from northern India. Hmm. Another quote from the article was, whether film, comics, or books, the fact of the matter is the Romani community is either invisible or stereotyped. There's a strong lack of positive depictions of them, with only semi-positive ones scattered throughout fictional media at large over the course of decades. Given how the Romani suffer from widespread discrimination across Europe while being nearly invisible in America, positive portrayals in the media are necessary. I also read an article that's called To Understand the Roma, You Need to Read Their Literature. And after reading that, I may have bought a book online that will arrive at some point. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, some really interesting stuff. So I'll add those links in. But because of that, I think, again, I'm not Romani, so this is just my limited perspective. But mm -hmm. after reading that, I think... I would probably say that there's something positive that was done here with Lucy Gray's character because she is such a beloved character and she's also a complex character mm. and other people have perspectives towards her that are negative based off of her background or, you know, things that she had to do, like be ex sexually exploited, but that's not what her character boils down to. She is incredibly intelligent. She is caring. She is ambitious in some ways. She has all of these different characteristics that I think make her a more well-rounded character than any of the things, at least from the limited articles I was reading, portrayed Romani people as in other media forms. Hmm. So... I'm not going to say that she did it perfectly because I don't understand enough about it, but I think Suzanne Collins did do something potentially that's different than what other people have done. Obviously, it doesn't say that she's Romani. It says that she's Kovi in this dystopian world, but I think the the parallels from some of the cultural elements yeah, are clear. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and in The Hunger Games races is frankly pretty well avoided throughout most of the the narratives so the kovi i think really are a, 
stand in for an interesting analog to the Romani and other nomadic people's experiences. And and I guess I think you're, you're absolutely right in in how a lot of the portrayal here I think is much more positive certainly than Romani are typically portrayed in media. I, I I guess I optimistically look at it as I hope that one day we will look back at this book as a problematic representation because we've had so much better representation since. Mm, absolutely, right? that's great. Mm-hmm. Because there are elements of appropriation here. As far as I understand, Suzanne Collins herself is not Romani. Yeah. I, I would love to, to know that she she spent time with and, and worked with those communities, but I don't know if that's the case. And either way, the reason why you in particular so quickly connected this interpretation of the Kovia as Romani, I think, is because it also leans into these typical representations of Romani in some ways. And hopefully more people will also be inspired to do the kind of research that you've been doing. And, and I've, I've been reading some articles as well and having these discussions and, and that that will lead to greater loving criticism and hopefully growth in that area as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think something that I would say to me is the most interesting part like where I think potentially the performing and the kind of snake charming and things could much more easily and quickly fall into problematic Mm. something that I haven't seen as much is the perspective on nation that defies a nationalism that is imposed by the state Hmm. that is something that's different because yeah we've seen oh growing up watch the hunchback of notre dame or whatnot right and there's these various specific types of portrayals but it rarely goes into that other cultural aspect that i think is really important yeah yeah absolutely well what what about lucy gray's character did you did you want to go into kind of her arc at all yeah well i think just I mean we've known that she's clever but she just continues to show how intelligent she is from getting away from snow to using the snake and the scarf and the mockingjays as distractions Mm. and I also really liked how she just did a 180 degree turn in regards to her view of snow without any actual proof of him lying about Sejanus it's like she's so shrewd once somebody breaks her trust she gets away from that relationship and she did that with Billy Tope as well and you know I've seen portrayals of female characters so many times of liking dangerous men or being just a few seconds too slow to realize a person's gonna kill them or whatnot and that's Mm. not lucy gray she's a romantic but she's a really intelligent romantic who yeah will remove herself from dangerous situations and never make excuses for a guy and i really love that about her Whereas before, I didn't know if that's where her character was going to go, but I'm, I am really glad that it went there. Totally. And it also makes me really happy that she figured out that Snow got Sejanus killed. Mm. <laughs> because it's like there's one person in the world that saw him for who he really was. I mean, eventually I think Tigress did too, since she smiled when Katniss said that she was going to kill Snow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... I don't know if she ever knew about Sejanus, so that was another really cool aspect in some ways, I feel like. Lucy Gray, I don't know, talking about the Mockingjays and and just different ways in which she was very open and honest that she kind of embodies truth in a a particular way in the book. Mm. Yeah, those are really, really great points, and and it kind of goes into what, what I love about Lucy Gray, especially this last part which is that she is an agent in the narrative and in her life, that Mm. she has agency. And when she decides who she wants to spend her time with and her life with, those are decisions she's making, and she's making them for reasons, for explicitly laid out reasons, where she talks about how trust is important to her and how she lost trust, and that's affected her relationship with Billy Tope and others. And 
now how her trust in Snow and then losing that trust affects her relationship with him, right? We see her talk about that and we see her act on that in really, really interesting ways. And it even goes into, I think, Colin's deft engagement with sexual exploitation, whether it be with Finnick or Tigress or Lucy Gray, I love how Suzanne Collins doesn't have to highlight the act and doesn't have to highlight the victimhood of of the, the survivor in a way that is all-encompassing, but that this is something that they went through and that affected them and that was awful. But I think that this really gives humanity and agency to the characters by focusing on this as just one element of the lives they've led and the, the decisions that they've had to make at times and, and what's been forced upon them at other times. And that's, that's just, I think, uh, a really, really great way of handling it. And, and it, it further shows the way that Lucy Gray, as a character who is so disadvantaged in so many intersecting ways in this society is still given so much agency and I just I, I really appreciate the way that, that that's shown and and even highlighted in the, the quote that we got at the beginning where where ultimately she is the one who gives the counterpoint to Dr. Gall's awful way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But should we move on to our main man? Ugh, that's such a gross way to say that. <laughs> But, I mean, he's gross, so I guess it works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Coriolanus Snow. Snow's the worst. Coriolanus Snow. <laughs> he really is an atrocious human being. Yeah, there are definitely some really telling points, even in the, these chapters, that I thought were representative of the way that his character has, if not changed, at least become more solid. For example, while he's searching for for Lucy, he swears by all things snow. And just the idea (laughs) of swearing to your own family name is the most snow thing I've ever heard (laughs) in my life. (laughs) So true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. But then, really interestingly, when he gets back to the base and he realizes that most of his personal effects have been damaged in some way, he casually throws them all out. And I think that this is really emblematic of the fact that his turn against Lucy Gray was more than just a turn against her because she was now standing in his way, but really maybe a subconscious understanding, but an understanding within himself that attachments actually don't mean anything to him. He is going to focus on what is useful to him. And because at the very same time, he's also thinking about how he'll keep some of Sejanus's stuff because it might help him get in with the plinths. This turn from an imagined intimacy or imagined emotional connection with people in his life to a completely utilitarian view of his relationships and the way he operates in the world, I think is is such a explicit way of pointing out the way he's actually been operating for most of his life and most of this book, but now it's just he's past that line. He's crossed the line and he's not looking back. Yeah, and I think the attachment to people is not important to him anymore. Attachment Mm. to his name and to status is because the only thing he keeps is his dad's compass. Mm. The lake water ruined his mom's rose-scented powder, so he threw that away. Ruined his photographs, threw that away. He abandoned his mother, Tigress, and his friends. The only goodness we kind of see exemplified in his life. Yeah, the only sentimentality he really has. Mm-hmm. And it was in the act of covering up the truth yeah. that, yeah, he just submerged his transgressions in the lake. And it just furthered that process of only caring about that ambition and that power. It's interesting because there were pictures of his friends too, and I don't remember, at least in their Hunger Games trilogy, the names Creed or Vickers or Dovecote being in them. So it kind of like begs the question of what happened to Lysistrata and Festus and Clemencia and their families. Like, did he abandon them along with any affectionate relationships? Since He sees himself of having been a victim to Lucy Gray's charms and and resigns himself to never loving anyone again. 
So yeah, that that was a definitely like powerful symbolic moment. Mm-hmm. Another great yeah. symbolic moment to me was back when he killed Bobbin. I I just love this line. It said the needle of his moral compass had swung madly without direction. Hmm. And that just kind of came back to me when he's just like spinning around in a circle shooting the machine gun because Lucy Gray is out there and of just this, yeah, kind of needle of the compass just swinging madly and the compass representing his dad. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And and that shooting wildly itself, I think, is, is so telling about Snow because... He, he shoots wildly and is so frustrated with the chaos of nature as he sees it without reflecting on his role in inst- instigating that chaos. Right? He's all about control, yet he does things all the time that are supposedly without his consent. I don't know how this handkerchief got in the tank. I just <laughs> did it, you know? And it's just like, he wants to control others, but he can't even control himself. Yeah, and and he doesn't want to be controlled by others. He'll still poison people, as we see with Dean Highbottom, and that's not allowed via the laws of the capital and the control that should be placed upon him that way, but he doesn't care about that kind of control. Yeah, that was something interesting that talking about a character arc over the book is just kind of this justification and distance that I kind of see coinciding. Snow kills four, potentially five people in this book alone Mm -hmm. and after the first he refuses to look directly at the dead bodies Mm. he even slowly gets farther and farther away from the bodies like it goes from hand-to-hand combat to Mm. using a gun across a small room to looking away from the hanging to shooting wildly in the dark and never even caring to find out if lucy gray died and then finally, to not even being present at Highbottom's murder at all. He even, like, loses the thought processes that can lead to remorse. Because his murder of Bobbin made him think. And then he thought about not feeling anything about murdering Mayfair. Mm. And then he had one cry over Sejanus. But then he has absolutely no remorse over potentially killing someone that supposedly he loved. And then that transitions into premeditated spiteful murder with Dean Highbottom. By the end, it leads him to happiness that he killed Dean Highbottom. Yeah, yeah. He sucks. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But I also think like, He's so hypocritical, like not even when it comes to death (laughs) and murder, but just these little things he would think like, oh, he was beginning to sympathize with Billy Tope Mm -hmm. when Lucy Gray's turned against him. And before it was like, oh, he's like barely capable of thought. And now he's beginning to sympathize with him. And then when his compass works after he went into the lake, he's like, His father was still out there somewhere protecting him, which is like the exact type of thing that the primitive thought that he would think about others for believing in supernatural things or even enjoying poetry or something like that. (laughs) Yet he can hold these beliefs. It's just, oh dear. Yeah. And Collins' writing, again, is so deft at showing that hypocrisy and showing that self-ignorance. It was just such a treasure to read through these passages and see his self-contradictions and feel more justified in hating him for all the awful things that he does. Mm -hmm. Which I guess when reading the book, if we don't see part of ourselves in Snow, then maybe we're just doing what he does. And that's such a good point, too. And and if you don't mind, it it kind of moves into one of my my final impressions. Now that the book is complete, and we talked about this in our first episode, we were thinking about this book being a prequel about a villain and a villain's point of view, and that certainly made me at least uncomfortable the thought of it. 
And I think that it ultimately worked because so many of the times that that type of narrative happens, where you see a prequel or you see something written from the point of view of a character who you know is villainous, it tends to be tragic and humanizing in a way that the villain becomes sympathetic. And Mm -hmm. that's not what Collins does. That doesn't mean that you can't empathize with him at times, but his actions and his choices and his point of view on the world are so inherently problematic that you cannot sympathize with him, despite all of the frustrations that have occurred and the violence that he had to live through as a child. That can be tragic, but his life is not a tragic life and it's not a sympathetic one. The tragedy really is that of Sejanus or of Lucy Gray or of the world, but it's not... Because he's in it. Yeah, yeah, in part because <laughs> he's in it. And yeah, so I just, I, I, I'm coming away still... I think, hesitant uh, of that type of narrative as a whole, but happy for the most part with what Collins did with it. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm so pleased she showed the building of President Snow, but yeah, it wasn't in a way that you feel sorry for him at all. Yeah. And yeah, that's so important to do and what so many people get really wrong in all sorts of media. And I was thinking about one of the ruminations that I had was kind of doubting if Snow's time in the arena was the transformative experience that changed everything for him, like Dr. Gall said it was. Mm. And now that we're at the end of the book, I think it wasn't. It was his time with her after the arena that was the transformative moment because it provided the justification for every future action and it provided the justification for the beliefs that he already held that were problematic. Yeah. Because, you know, if he had talked to Tigris or Sejanus after killing Bobbin, he would have had a very different conversation. And maybe, I don't know, maybe not have been so blasé about killing his next victim. So yeah, that it was just ideologies are much more powerful than actions because they not only guide the actions that we take but they also guide how we feel about them and therefore Mm. how likely we are to keep doing them and I think that that's kind of one of the the themes and the messages of the book and when I was thinking about that it was kind of funny because there's the the Samwise Gamgee quote that I love that's talking about what makes people heroes is that they had lots of chances of turning back only they didn't they kept going because they were holding on to something that was good in the world and I think Snow is the exact opposite of that he's a monster because he had lots of chances of turning back only he didn't Hmm. he could have changed his perspective after killing Bobbin. He could have told Sejanus to run away. He could have told the Covey that Lucy Gray might be hurt in the woods. He could have, you know, outlawed the games once he finally came to power. He had so many, so many chances of turning back and changing his perspectives or holding himself accountable. But he was holding on to his ambition for power and status and holding on to an ideology that told him that he deserved it. So yeah, he never turned back. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting perspective. I like that a lot. And and what you and Samwise Gamgee and me linking it all together <laughs> on our nerdiness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's great. <laughs> I enjoy that very much. And and he not only doesn't turn back, but he utilizes it as more propulsion forward. He sees these other perspectives that should challenge his way of seeing the world and his place in it, but instead solidifies it. And he sees this as these people are choosing this and these people need the control that I provide because otherwise they'll have this chaotic freedom that he detests. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great read. Yeah, and I think that it doesn't only apply to him either if one of the main messages is about our ideologies and what's motivating us and what we're holding on to. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he chooses power and Sejanus chooses justice. They both held so strongly to their beliefs. Yeah, it's a good book. <laughs> it is a good book. <laughs> 
But uh, what else? What else were you gonna gonna bring up? What other final impressions did you have? Well, so I have like two little head cannons slash wishful thinkings. Okay. <laughs> One is that. I think it's interesting that Ma and Tigress got close because, hmm. I mean, obviously they're both great, but I kind of wonder how their interactions impacted each other and, like, if that had some, anything to do with that Tigress was someone that Plutarch said to trust. If I was Ma and I lost Sojanus, I would figure out a way to keep the work he cared about alive since it hmm. was important work and it was just work. You know, we know that there was a network of wealthy or at least privileged rebels in Katniss's time between Cinna, Cressida, Plutarch, etc. And so, yeah, I don't know. I would just like to think that Tigris and Ma were a part of that since Tigris and Plutarch obviously had a relationship and she hid them and all of that. And so it'd just be nice to think that Ma was involved in that too. Yeah. Ma Plinth as the start of the Capital Rebels. Love it. Yeah. Or the continuation, right? And if she could be like financing some stuff, Mm. you know, it'd be great. Uh, My second one is that if there's still a copy of the 10th Hunger Games in the vault, it would be just amazing if it could be like incorporated into history curriculum for decades to come Hmm. and like tigress could be a person that could come in and fill in some of the details that only she would have known that Hmm. like could let both lucy gray and sejanus's stories of defiance kind of live on even if you know it'd never be a complete story but i think that could be really cool yeah. And if that, like, erasure wasn't allowed to stand. If Cressida finds it and, and makes a, a documentary about the 10th Hunger Games, that would right? be awesome. I'm down. <laughs> but uh, what about in terms of how the book makes you think about the Hunger Games trilogy and, like, the whole world of the Hunger Games in general? Yeah, I it makes me really appreciate the world in, in really interesting ways. And, and it, it makes me think about, and it's also probably due to the fact that we've been doing these touch points each time, but I really have a stronger idea of the parallels between the world of Panem and our world and mm-hmm. the way that these metaphors really resonate, the way that power can historically grow and hierarchies can strengthen and solidify and people can operate within those hierarchies, which I think is is one of the things that is constantly one of our, our points in our Hunger Games episodes of, of the, the show, where we think about, you know, what is the capital citizen thinking about at this time and navigating through some of the different aspects of it. And I think that those are really interesting questions. And some of that was answered here, which I, I really, really appreciate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one thing that I feel like has impacted me a bit is thinking about the whole end of of the trilogy when snow is talking to katniss and says that we both know that i'm not above killing children but that was a waste uh, in front of their mansion because he kills people for specific reasons Mm. and since like so many shadows have been cast over his ability to be able to understand himself and his own motivation. <laughs> it kind of throws so many things into question. Now, I do believe that Quinn and Plutarch were the ones who killed those kids, but I guess I'm looking forward to the next time I read the trilogy to see how what I've read of Snow affects how I interpret what happens in those books. And, you know, that includes obviously what Snow says but also how trustworthy Katniss's narration of the so-called facts are as well, because it's from her perspective. Obviously, she's way more trustworthy a narrator than Snow is, but it'll be interesting to look back at those books with with more of the, the doubts than I necessarily had initially reading. Yeah, that's interesting, because now I'm also thinking about rereading them with this idea of control at the forefront of my mind and mm-hmm. seeing the actions of the capital or the lack of action by the capital as elements of trying to build control or not. Because District 12 in the first book in The Hunger Games, it is relatively unpoliced compared to what it becomes and what other 
other districts have to go through. And But we also know that there was a period of time where it was way more policed. Exactly. And so, yeah. you know, are these decisions, is it that there's just bureaucracy that makes things more difficult? Or, you know, what what is happening here that uh, that is leading to these kinds of waxing and waning of control and physical presence there. And, and then, of course, just thinking more about peacekeepers. Uh, that's one thing that's really been illuminated by this book that I would I would really appreciate looking at the Hunger Games through that perspective as well. So, yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, can you believe that we already did our Chaos in the Hunger Games episode? I know, like a right? A years ago. It's just like, now everything <laughs> is different. <laughs> Something else connected to the Hunger Games world that I thought was interesting was was Snow's thoughts about Lucy Gray, and he he said Lucy Gray was no lamb. She was not made of sugar. She was a victor, and and I kind of liked how that was carried through from the original trilogy. All of the victors were victors. They were willing to kill people to help their own survival, and that's the biggest part of why they won. Like, even Peta, who's the most peaceful of any of the victors we see, killed Brutus, and... Yeah, I think that it's just such a stark contrast to the Sejanuses of the world who never could have ever been a victor. And so, yeah, I just, I kind of like that that came through and was reinforced with this book too. Yeah. And the, yeah, just the delight of that idea. Sejanus is hashtag best boy in part because he could never be a victor. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, Sejanus. <laughs> that, that's my hashtag at the book. <laughs> uh, Sejanus. <laughs> oh, Sejanus. Sigh, Janus. <laughs> yes, that's Janus indeed. But my, I guess my final kind of thought about the book is looking back at that quote about Mockingjades being the bona fide bird. Mm. And now that we've come to the end of the book, I think it makes a lot of sense and even follows through to the end of the Hunger Games trilogy because it just has made me see that like Mockingjays cannot be controlled. Mm. They can't be turned on and off and therefore manipulated like Jabberjays can. Mm. That's why you can't use them for deception. And isn't that just Katniss? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like snow right like snow tried to control the message she was sending to the capital and the districts but he couldn't same with 13 right like Candace everything cannot be controlled yeah coin tried to control her. anyone who tries to control hey even would try to control her like <laughs> she can't be controlled and you know snow should have known from the moment that she shot that arrow through the apple in the pig's mouth right by the game makers <laughs> that no, like she's <laughs> spontaneous defiance and like you cannot turn her voice on and off. And, you know, all she needed was a platform. And then she brought the whole egregious system down. And I kind of really love that 65 years later, like Katniss got to finish the kind of charismatic defiance that Lucy Gray started at her own reaping. And that the four novels together really show girls building on each other's small or large subversive acts, whether that's singing a rebellious song or like Katniss does directly calling out the president on live Mm. television, that like it's the actions of not only women, but like women of color from the most impoverished district and most marginalized status that make all the difference. And while the good men in the books have supportive roles in overthrowing the system, and it's only the white men and women that build or maintain the system of domination. And I think that together, both of these books brought that out even more for for the original trilogy. Absolutely. Well, I don't have anything else to to add. I think that we we kind of covered it. And <laughs> if you if you as a listener haven't kind of realized our our thesis, our conclusion, this book's pretty great. I mean, I have 20,000 extra things to add, but <laughs> we are already 
way over time. (laughs) So we will be sharing those in our live Zoom session that we're going to have with our patrons, which we're really excited about. And also just really want to thank them for engaging in the discussions we've had about the book all along the way. Yeah. Which any of you can access if you want to join us at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. And I suppose we should talk about what we're doing next week. Yeah. So so before we, we go back into our regular programming, we're going to have a special episode, right? Yeah. So if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we sometimes do something called sorting chats. It's where we play the role of the sorting hat from Harry Potter for various of our geeky series and sort them into what Hogwarts houses they would be in. And so we are going to do that next week for these characters from The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So that'll just be a fun way to end this tragic book. (laughs) 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 To just geek out and lead us back into our discussions of other properties. Then after that, instead of going to a Hunger Games episode, which we would normally have in the rotation, since we've just spent 11 weeks on Hunger (laughs) Games, we are going to be going on to Avatar The Last Airbender and picking up from there. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening to this week's episode and to this whole mini-series. It's been so much fun to do, and I'm really looking forward to next week's sorting chat to top it all off. If you want to find us on social media, you can find those links in our episode description. You can also find links to our website and our email address. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thank you so much again for listening to this very long episode, and we're excited to see you again next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!